She goes, you're defined by three things. And I'll never forget this. It was like, almost like it was yesterday. She goes, you're defined by love, you're defined by faith, and you're defined by mercy. Welcome to the Breakthrough of Grace podcast, a place where we share the stories of ordinary lives transformed by God's extraordinary graces. We invite you to join us as our speakers talk about their journey towards living lives of rich Christian authenticity to encourage and inspire each one of us. We are thankful you're here and taking this time to spend with us. Welcome, friends. This episode features a talk by Michael May on the topic of divine mercy. Michael grew up in New York and in his early years had words spoken over him regarding the mercy of God. And this powerful encounter, as we'll hear shortly, has stayed with him his entire life. Through his stories, Michael shares how he has come to understand that mercy is so much more than forgiveness, although that is very important. Mercy is charity in action, which has the power to unite our hearts to Christ's, and in that posture, to act in merciful ways with those around us. What I love about this talk is Michael's entertaining style and his powerful insights where God has given him eyes to see mercy in action. Michael's talk was recorded during a monthly prayer meeting held at a parish in Southern California. We hope this blesses you as much as it did us. From a theological perspective, the word uh, mercy, the root word in Latin is misericordia. Um, derived from two words, first word meaning heart, or I mean, sorry, first word meaning pity, um, or misery, and then cor, cordia, which is the heart. Um, I can remember as a child growing up with my mom, we'd go to church, and we would always say in the beginning of uh, church, after we've, you know, confessed our sins, um, we'd say, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. My mother would always do this. So to this day, I do, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. We do it again now. Um, I think after the, um, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, I do it like six times now. So I do it, <laughs> Lord have mercy, I do this too. So I'm giving my, ha- my heart a pounding. But it was just to kind of show um, uh, the mercy of our heart. Um, and Dr. Alan Hunt, who is of, not right now, he's of a dynamic Catholic fame. He and uh, uh, that organization have gotten uh, quite friendly, but he's also a leading a- a- author. And he goes on to say that a priest once explained mercy um, as being... Uh, when we ask for God's mercy, he's saying, we are essentially asking him to relieve us of a heart that is in misery. And our hearts can be in a state of misery, not just from sin, but from deep hurt caused by a broken relationship with a family member, suffering with infertility, um, from pain, physical, men- physical illness, mental illness, losing a job, being betrayed, being betrayed or abandoned, from spiritual or even physical poverty, and so on. I understand that better now, and it kind of overwhelms me, it comforts me, it also challenges me. But looking back as a child, I can see that beyond the Eucharist and even all the sacraments, how I've been exposed and experienced God's mercy um, day to day. The most memorable experience comes when um, I was in elementary school, believe it or not, in the sixth grade. We were on a uh, field trip. We were going to a place where um, they were actually reenacting uh, the Civil War and the era of the Civil War. So it was like kind of a, you know, actors on stage and they were kind of going to the war and we got a chance to see what life was like back then. It really kind of drew you into the situation. And it was a pretty fun day. It was like maybe, we were maybe like almost a little before lunch and it was an adult who um, 
had asked me to go and, uh, I know Delta had been drinking, as a matter of fact, it turns out, who asked me to go and retrieve a soda can that he tried to throw into the garbage, and uh, he missed. Um, but when addressing me, he used the N-word, and everyone heard it, um, and the place went silent. Um, I got up, I got the can, I put it in the garbage, and um, I was always taught, you don't talk back to adults, you do what you're told. So I, I did nothing. I thought it was unfair. I wish it had been a kid because at least then I could hit him or, you know, there'd be some kind of a, you know, a back and forth, a discussion at least. But I couldn't do much with this guy. There was much I could do at all. So I just, uh, I just did it and I wanted to disappear. You know, I, I felt, I just felt less than. You fill in the blanks. I just felt less than. And I didn't want anyone looking at me or speaking to me, even though my, 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 my friends were, um, you know, empathetic. They were, they were feeling for me. Um, he's like, what a jerk, blah, blah, blah. I just want everyone to go away. Uh, I can remember going home that night, and uh, I was debating on telling my parents. Um, I, I did, but I didn't tell a teacher. I told my parents. I didn't tell a teacher, just out of pure, embar pure embarrassment. Um, but I told my parents, and, uh, you know, my mother put on a string of four-letter words that, I mean, it was eloquent. I never heard her curse so much, so, so, so... So compactly, so creatively, it's like she wasn't foreign to those words. I was like, you know, she did it very, really, really well. I was like, you know, you've, you've done this before. She lost a little bit of innocence in my mind at that point in time. Um, and I remember my dad saying to me, you did the right thing, son. Now this gives me the reason to go up there and have sex with that man. And that's the best way I can say what he really said, because um, he was livid. He's like, um, I'm going to go up. We're going to have a conversation. Um, and I was a little concerned because my dad had guns. We had guns in the house. My dad had like at least two or three guns that were registered. I didn't care about those. Those were locked up in a safe. But he had a couple of guns that he just acquired somehow. Um, they weren't registered. Um, and I was really concerned that this guy was going to be in a lot of trouble, this parent. But then I realized that um, shortly after that, we got a phone call from the school. I guess this has gotten reported to the school by the, to, to the teachers. And... I think that was a good thing because otherwise it would have been like, you know, my word against someone else's and they were an adult and I figured I was going to lose that battle. You know, you, you typically did back then every time. But it was a, um, it was actually the principal who called up and said, you know, I heard about the altercation. We're very sorry. Can you please come to the school? We're going to have that parent come in and say they're sorry. And uh, my, my mom and dad said, you don't have to go. Even though the apology is for you, you know, we need to talk through this. And I can remember being very, very nervous about the whole thing. Both parents came back. Everything seemed to be fine. My mom said, you know, there's a nun up there I want you to speak to. Her, her name was Sister Rosalia. So I went to a Catholic school, Catholic elementary school, and Sister Rosalia was one of the uh, Sisters of Charity. Um, they did the teaching at that school, and they all wore, you know, full habit, you know, all this full dress every single day. And she was new. She came in, um, you know, from their, from their convent. Uh, she was there as a fourth-grade teacher, I believe. And she also ended up being... Back then, I'm looking back, you now I could see she was kind of like a spiritual advisor to parents and to some of the kids, uh, even though we were in elementary school. But that's because that's what she did. She wasn't hired for that. That was just kind of her thing. And I can remember I'm coming back from um, the church because I was an altar boy. And it kind of, it, you know, those days it, bleed, it bled into lunch. So I missed maybe like 10, 15 minutes of lunch. And that was when, you know, you got out of lunch. You just, you know, you ate really quick. And then you would go off and play, you know, kickball. Um, what, what you call dodgeball here back in New York was called bombardment. And um, three flies up. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a fun time. It was a fun time of the day, but it was getting eaten into because of uh, being an altar boy. And I'm running across the, the front of the school, across the lawn, and uh, she, she was walking up the other way. She says, oh, man, I've been looking for you. And I didn't even know who she was. I mean, I knew of her because she was introduced at an assembly meeting we had, but I didn't know her, and I know that she knew me. 
And she goes, yeah, you know, I heard about what happened to you. And I'm like, oh, man, I was trying to put this behind me. I was like, can we just let this go? Um, and she goes, uh, so um, when you used the N-word, why did you answer? And I looked at her like, ah, he was an adult. He goes like, yeah, yeah, but why'd you respond? I'm like, because he told me to. He goes, yeah, but he didn't call you by your name. He says, why'd you respond to that name? And I'm looking at her, and I'm just like stunned. I didn't know what to say, what to do, and I'm just kind of like, I, I never really thought about it at all. I just kind of did what I was told. He's like, well, no, when people call you by your name and tell you to do something, you should respond, but why did you answer to that name? And I was like, okay. I'm getting schooled right now by this little white lady who doesn't really understand me, but actually is coming with more wisdom than I think either one of my parents did. I expected what they said. This was catching me total by surprise, totally by surprise. And the look in her eyes was as if she wasn't even trying to teach me something. She was really inquisitive as to why I didn't, why I didn't, why I responded, why, did, why I just responded to a name that wasn't mine. And I said, well, um, okay, I get this now. I've been going to Catholic schools for a while. It was at least six years, maybe seven years. Um, kindergarten there too and I says okay I know what she's looking for so I'm going through my mind I'm like because I'm a child of God because I'm holy because Christ is inside of me which one of those is the right answer I'm like okay child of God I says because I'm a child of God she's like that's right because what does that mean I'm like oh jeez I'm like all right usually that one gets me by but I'm like no okay so we gotta go into it because um, God is in me and God was in him and I really should not, I should respond to him as if he was God because God lives in us. And she goes, what does that mean? What are you talking about? And I'm like, gee, Manelli lady. It's like, I'm missing lunch here. My friends are outside playing. And like, why the, why the 20 questions? And so she goes, um, I remember saying, uh, what defines you? What makes you who you are? And now I'm getting into, I'm thinking like my parents, my mom, my experiences. Um, I didn't know what the right answer was. I just didn't, and I know, didn't know what she was looking for. But again, I'm sure there was a teaching moment there, but she was also just really kind of curious and wanted to know if I knew the answer to these questions, like, like it mattered, because it was really important. And so I said, well, you know, I guess I'm a, I'm a composite of my mom and my dad and, you know, my, my, my religion, my faith and my history, and I'm just like going on and on and on, looking for something for, for a light to go off to if you just leave me alone, but it just didn't happen. She goes like, let me tell you something. Let me tell you what you're defined by. And I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> you know, I didn't really even care what she was going to say at this point in time. I just wanted to leave. You know, now it's like 10, 15 minutes left. I see kids are like starting to line up. I'm like, geez. Um, because right after lunch, we always had a, the priest would come out and say a few words. Um, so we lost like five or 10 minutes in lunch, you know, listening to that. And then we go in. Um, so, uh, yeah, I know. I sound very reverent, right? <laughs> so uh, she goes, you're defined by three things. And I'll never forget this. It was like, almost like it was yesterday. She goes, you're defined by love, you're defined by faith, and you're defined by mercy. The first two I kind of got. The mercy one, I didn't get it, but I was like, whatever. But the look on her face made me want to say, what do you mean by that? But we were running out of time, so I just kind of let it go. Um, my mother told me, um, that day I went and told my mother, like, what happened, you know, very loosely, you know, kind of just skimmed through it. She goes like, yeah, that's Sister Rosalia. She's really great. When we went up to speak to the school, the parent was there and so was she. And she gave us both this great talk on, on mercy. She spent a lot of time on mercy. And I was like, oh, yeah, really? So that's funny. What'd she say? Did she ask you what, what defines you? <laughs> and my mom goes, no, why? She's like, oh, man. She was grilling me, and she said I was defined by love, faith, and mercy. So we should go and find out what that means. I never did. Um, I, I didn't go back because I pretty much uh, had enough of her 
at least anyway for 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 that for that for that day. But the event stuck with me. Obviously, you know, I I I remembered it. Um, I never forgot. And then I later came to understand that um, uh, God made us out of love, um, and we should love Him with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. Um, and I came to know that love was the greatest desire uh, of all, and and the greatest desire of all the virtues, and it's the the one virtue that everything flows from. Um, because God first loved us. That's where it all started. Um, faith, I learned objectively, you know, uh, the, the two definitions. One, uh, you know, objectively, it's just the sum of all, you know, scripture, principles, truths, teachings, like the Catholic faith, Mormon faith. And then subjectively, it's, you know, how we ascend and practice those things, right? Um, th- that's the kind of faith we live, the kind of faith we aspire to, or aspire to live, at least anyway. Um, and at that point in time, mercy to me was just synonymous with forgiveness. It just really meant... Um, Forgiveness. So um, I, I thought when I was going to do this talk, I'd stop and look up, uh, you know, get a definition for the word mercy. And um, this one I kind of liked because uh, it kind of fits with, with the way I was, um, it, it's been, you know, evolving in my life and opened up in my life. Um, and it kind of fits this talk really well. So, but it's, it's from Webster. When I was coming up, Webster was like the source for uh, understanding words and definitions. And there's so many now. Um, uh, but I still go, I still kind of go to Webster. And the first meaning is um, compassion or shown, as shown especially to an offender or to one subject to, uh, or some, one to someone who's subject to. So someone has authority over you and they're kind of forgiving you. They're kind of um, not going to exercise due justice towards you. Um, it can also be a blessing that is an act of divine favor or compassion. And it's compassionate treatment of those in distress. And the word compassion keeps coming out every single time. Um, when I went into uh, high school, I joined the, um, the vocation group, which we eventually called the, the vacation group. Um, it, was, it was put in place. It was an all-boys school run by priests. And it was initially put in place to help young men understand their calling in life. Um, and the goal was to see if you wanted to become a priest. That was a big part of it. But they also studied other types of vocations, and we really learned about the vocation of marriage in that particular class. I joined it because they did a lot of uh, trips. They were always out of school a lot. That's why we called it the vacation group. Um, most of all, they would always go to the Yankees home opener. I was a big Yankee fan, so I looked forward to that every year. Um, and it was in, the, in that group that we did exercises, and uh, the very first year, I would say maybe first year, year and a half, we went through the corporal works of mercy as a group. And it was in that group, um, just to read through them here, um, I think I would know them, I'm sure I remember them right now, but um, uh, I learned that we, you know, this is where we help our neighbors, at least the corporal works, we help our neighbors through material needs. Um, shelter the homeless, clothe the naked, visit the sick, um, and the imprisoned, bury the dead, give alms to the poor. And we did a lot of that. I mean, it's so funny Simon had mentioned this, because we did it in pairs, and uh, often we do it in groups. But I began to see that mercy wasn't just about forgiveness because we were helping people that didn't offend me, hadn't done anything to me. They were just living. They were just, you know, people, you know, doing things. And yet these were called corporal works of mercy. I never stopped to really answer, really to ask a priest, you know, why that was or get a deeper definition of mercy. But I did find by living it and experiencing it, I got a better, a more broader understanding of just what mercy was. Especially in one time when we were... Um, we were down in, uh, in the Bronx, actually. Um, we'd taken a bus ship up there, and we'd gone to a, um, a really impoverished neighborhood where they had a, a shelter where we'd give out food uh, to the homeless. 
And, you know, we were doing this, and I had paired up with a buddy of mine who actually went on to become a priest. He's now the principal of the school, uh, Father, Father Tom Collins. And we were giving out this food, and he gave a... We gave away all the food, and we had our lunches now, and so we're going back towards the, the meeting area where we're all going to meet at one point in time around the bus. And on the way, there was another guy who came up um, who was late. All the homeless people knew that you were coming, so they all kind of lined up uh, ready to get food. And I noticed, I watched Tom give this guy his lunch, and the guy said, oh, thank you. I, I was late, and I didn't think it was going to be anything left. He says, no, no. Uh, this is given to you um, from Jesus, you know, by Jesus, his hands, you know, his heart, rather, through my hands. I think were some of like, the words that he used. And the guy started crying. And um, Tom said, you know, uh, you know you're welcome. And, and, and I'm looking at the guy who's crying, because most of these people just took the food and ran. I mean, and some of these guys were selling half the stuff we gave them, like right around the corner. They were, a lot of them were, were on drugs and things of that nature. But this guy really started crying. I could tell he was appreciative of the food. And... Uh, Tom was consoling the guy, and he goes, you know, how you doing? And he said, you know, thank you so much. And uh, Tom says, oh, you're welcome. He goes, you know, uh, what you said to me really, really hit my, really touched my heart. And Tom says, oh, yeah, why? He goes, like, because I've been praying for Jesus to help me, and I know you guys come, and I guess I could always kind of know you guys were doing it on behalf of your faith or what you believed. He goes, but it was important for you to tell me that you were that Jesus was working through you because sometimes I feel like I'm alone. I feel like he's not with me. He's nowhere around. And I thought Tom's words were just amazing. And and I began to see that, you know, mercy was was so much more than just just forgiveness. It as a matter of fact, it seemed to encapsulate or um, meld very well with love. It was hard to distinguish one from the other. Um, at that point in time, I began to notice that a lot of the virtues, even though we speak to them discreetly, you know, and, and separately, they all kind of come together. You know, they all, once you get one, you get the other one. Um, uh, the phrase in the Bible where Jesus says, Sheek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be given to you besides, really started to take root and really started to, um, to grow in me. I began to understand that um, no matter where I start, whatever I focus on with regards to a virtue, Everything else will start to come with it. You know, you start getting the, all, the, all the other ones. It's kind of like a, like a bonus. Um, we're not the college, St. John's University. So, yeah, I don't know if you're, if you're doing the math. This is like um, 16 years now of, of uh, Catholic education. I was actually asked to um, or recommend to, to, to go to St. John's or to a Catholic university after the um, vocation group. And it's funny, um, I never followed up to see if... Uh, what my scorecard was, like, should I go into the priesthood or should I not? Um, it's amazing. Things could have been differently, but I never followed up, and no one really contacted me. I just kind of, you know, went the way I would. But I probably would have gone to seminary if, they, if someone would have asked me, uh, seriously. But um, I guess it kind of went the way it was supposed to go. Um, and then afterwards, uh, I think shortly after, so this particular, in, 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 at St. John's in college, we had a teacher, a philosophy teacher, who was... Um, really big on what she, what she called modern-day saints. She was also a nun. She didn't wear the habit or anything either, which I was so used to nuns wearing habits at that point in time. And they were slowly getting away from that. I guess it depends upon the order, but they were slowly getting away from that. And I always thought it was sneaky of her not to wear a habit because she came across as a regular teacher. Um, and I found that she was a nun maybe uh, midway through the, through the course. But she was into, like, modern-day 
saints, like every day. She believed we were all saints. We were all doing things that were saintly or becoming saints. And she spoke a lot about Dr. Martin Luther King, who I knew, and I always thought of being at, just being like a civil rights advocate, um, someone who was very much for protecting and um, defending, you know, African Americans and making sure that we're being treated justly. Well, she gave me a book called um, Testament of Hope, and this book is about 600 pages long. It's, it's the best book on Dr. Martin Luther King I've ever read, um, in spite of the ones that my parents gave me, in spite of what they told me about him, and it's nothing but a bunch of his writings. And I mean, it's all of his writings, all of his sermons, um, when he spoke to the PTA. I mean, every li- I mean, if, if he, if he like, spoke to his children, it seemed like um, every little um, speech that he ever made or writing that he ever, um, anything he ever jotted down was in this book. And I'm reading it, and I'm beginning to see, oh, it was written by his wife, by the way. The author was, was, was his wife. Um, and she goes, you know, the world needed to see what he, real, what he was really made of and what inspired him to do what he did. And it was a brilliant way to get, get the message across without stating it, because as I'm going through these readings, I could see that he believed, um, he was very compassionate. He believed that there was too much evil in the world, um, there was too much hurt in the world, and that hurt people, hurt people, hurt people. Like hurt people, people who are hurt, hurt other individuals. And that was no way for us to live. He honestly believed that the injustices that were being um, invoked by any, any particular group were, was bad for the person that was doing it. And I began to see this is what allowed him to do what he did to the point of where he was willing to die. I mean, he was getting death threats for a very long time. He could have turned around in any given moment, but he honestly believed what was being done was wrong and was bad for anyone who was committing this injustice. And I began to see that what he stood for was a way above and beyond anything that was um, uh, categorized by, by, by skin color, by um, social status. It was really just about how we were supposed to work within each other in this, in this um, uh, I, I guess, this, this, this area or this um, cloak of mercy. And she used that word saying that this is where his hope came from. Um, because he understood how merciful God was, he knew there was a chance for every individual. And for the very first time where I saw a fusion between mercy and justice, that you really cannot have mercy or proper mercy unless you have proper justice, something that tells you this is wrong, something that tells you this is not right, but it can't be the way that I see it or you see it or that we see it amongst ourselves. It's got to be something greater than all of us, something that we aspire to. And it's the very first time I began to, 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 see, I began to see him truly as a man of God. Um, as she would say, I wish he was, I, she would always say, I wish Martin Luther King were Catholic. He'd be a saint in no time. Um, and I, I thought she was just being nice. I thought it was, it was flattering. But as I got to understand him, I was like, my goodness, she's right. He probably would have been. Um, but her real message was, we are all saints. We are all being trained to be saints. And um, at the core of this was, was mercy and understanding God's mercy. Um, sorry, sorry, I got lost in my notes. Sorry, talking so much. And so, um, as I started to um, now zero in on the word mercy and what it was, and trying to understand it, um, I ran across um, several books where you know I'd always read in the Bible where God is love, um, but then I started reading where our church is being described as a church of mercy, and then I I read I read a book. Um, that was written by, well, then he was a bishop, but now he's, he was Pope, Pope Francis, where I think he says, um, God is mercy. And 
I, I remember saying, wow, that's a pretty bold statement. You know, God is love, God is mercy, which is it? Where, again, it comes into how all these things, you know, tend to, tend to come together or fit together. And there's a, sister, there's a sister by the name of Sister Miriam James. I don't know if you guys have heard of her, Miriam James. She's a very famous speaker, and she speaks a lot to the youth. Um, but she tells a story of how mercy invokes, um, how love and mercy are not only uh, synonymous or uh, entwined to, to each other so tightly that you can't even take them apart. It's almost impossible to speak to one without the other. But she started going to, on to other um, virtues like, um, like courage. Um, and then she touched on a really key point through a story, which I thought was a pretty funny story. But it's a story about a, a priest who comes to the scene of a place where a young lady is about to commit suicide or contemplating it. She's, in a, she's on a bridge, um, and she climbed up the bridge, climbed up the, one of the trestles of the bridge to a, a landing place where you would go and do some work if you were going to fix it. But she was playing to jump off um, on an angle that it wasn't intended to be jumped off from, you know, into the, into the water below. And there were tons of people there trying to talk her, trying to talk her out of it. Um, this priest comes who was actually, turns out, was from her parish. Um, and he's talking to her, and they're all looking at him, and he's afraid of heights. But he starts climbing up, you know, uh, this quote-unquote ladder, or climbing up to reach her, and he's trembling. He's trembling. Um, he's, uh, like, knees are knocking. The wind's blowing. It's very, very cold. And... He doesn't even know what he's doing at this point in time. He's just, he's just going up, you know, one, one step at a time. And the young lady looks over, and she can see that he's afraid. She can see that he's trembling. She can see that there's no place for him to be. And she starts going, you're almost here, Father. Take it easy, one step at a time. Come on, I'll help you. And he's coming up, and she reaches over, and she helps him up. And he kind of gets down almost in a fetal position, and he's like, oh, my God, how are we going to get down? How are we going to get down? What are we going to do? She then goes... I'll help you. Don't worry. I'll go before you, and I'm going to guide you down as we go down. So she hops over first, and she's going down slowly, and he's coming down behind her. And she's like, you're doing well, Father. You almost got it. Hang on there. We're almost there. Just don't look down, though. Don't look down. Just trust me. He goes, she goes, just stay with me. Hold on. We're going to be okay. And they both get down. All the people run to the priest. It was like, oh, my God, Father, what did you say? What did you say to her? And all he could say was, she saved my life. Oh, praise God. Oh, praise God. She saved my life. And the, the irony of the story, of course, is that, you know, he goes up because she's going to commit suicide. They come down together. And they finally spoke to her. And they says, you know, well, why didn't you jump? What did he say? Well, why did you do that? She goes like, you know, it, it seemed like my life mattered to him. Um, therefore, I couldn't jump. Um, it seemed like he thought I was worthwhile. You know, he showed true compassion. Um, and the point of that story was that, you know, through mercy, um, in his mercy, God can make, God can turn, I'm not saying he can make evil good, um, but he can take good out of a bad situation. He can take something that is, um, quote unquote, a mistake, um, off the beaten path, and he can turn it into something positive. Um, almost kind of like um, this story, I know if I started before in forgiveness, um, but he can take a situation that seems hopeless um, and turn it into something positive. Um, I experienced this my, myself. When, um, or another example of this, when um, I had a friend who was converting from um, um, Islam to, uh, to Christianity, and he asked me to be his uh, sponsor. And it was, a good, it was great for me because I, I went through the uh, RCIA program with him, and I learned a lot about my faith myself, probably more than he did. I was asking more questions than he was, that's for sure. And we were at the Easter Vigil. This is when he, were, you know, he was about to get um, indoctrinated into the church. 
And during that Mass, I can remember uh, Father Jim Polson. He was then the, um, the pastor at St. Gregory the Great. And he said this verse, he attributed it to St. Augustine. Um, he said, oh, necessary sin. And I was in shock because I'm like, when is sin like ever, ever necessary? How can you say there's necessary sin? What sin is necessary? And he was referring back to Adam and Eve um, and the Garden of Eden when they bit the apple and, he, and they committed original sin. And I'm like, you know, oh, like, so you're saying God knew they were going to sin, that, you know, this is, he goes, well, God knows everything. Um, and I said, so this was just a setup, you know, this was, this was all just, you know, just kind of meant to happen. What was the point? What's the purpose? And so then he looks at me and he goes, um, this is Father Jamie, he's a great teaching priest, by the way. He goes, so how would you know God's merciful? And I'm like, well, because he says so. He goes, no, but how would you know? I'm like, well, I, I guess, he goes, yeah, you'd have to experience it, wouldn't you? I'm like, well, yeah. He goes, like, so the only way Adam and Eve were ever going to know, or any of us are ever going to know God's mercy is after we've sinned, and he's forgiven us, and his arms are open to us. He goes, even that sin was necessary for us to understand God even more, and I mean more fully, because when you're dealing with imperfect people, I mean, mercy is all you got. I mean, it, it, you have to have a God that's standing there waiting for you to come back. Um, it brought back images of the prodigal son, of the father who was just sitting there waiting for his son to come back, arms open. Um, it, it, it just started to gush in me as, as to how, like, no matter how far off the beaten path I go, I can always turn around, you know, and, and God is always going to be there. Um, this got compounded, and, uh, I mean, immediately after that, because he, he introduced me to and gave me the book on uh, St. Faustina as... Um, Simon spoke to earlier, and I mean, I devoured that book, and it reminded me so much of Sister Rosalia. Um, so many things that she said uh, were actually uh, in that book. I don't know that she had read it because this is so many years ago, but it really resonated with me. As a matter of fact, she sounded a lot like um, Sister Rosalia. I thought she was nuts because <laughs> a, a lot of her vision, she was a visionary, uh, I mean, a mystic, I should say. Uh, but I focused on two key points, um, two key promises um, from St. Faustina. Um, and I've read that book a gazillion times, and it's referenced just like the catechism. Each paragraph has a number to it, um, and you can go back and reference different aspects of it. I, I, you know, if you have a chance, it's a, it's a thick book, but it's a great, great read. Two of the key promises to me, there's a lot in that book, trust me, there's a lot in that book, but two key promises to me is like, I desire that the Feast of Mercy be solemnly celebrated on the first Sunday of, after Easter. The soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion in a state of grace on this day shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment. So on that particular day, um, just a second part, let me read this too. Souls who spread the honor of my mercy at the hour of death, I will not be a judge for them, but the merciful Savior. Um, on that particular day, after you've done, after you've gone to communion, I've gone to confession, received communion, that is the, the cleanest you can ever be in comparison to when you were baptized. Um, it not only gets rid of the sin itself, but the punishment that goes with it. So that, that goes to purgatory. It's almost like a free pass right to heaven. Um, after reading this book, I remember putting it down and going like, man, Jesus really sounds desperate. I mean, he really sounds desperate for us. I mean, this guy is like at his wit's end, like, what can I do to save you? You know, I, 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 I can do no more. At that point in time, I really believed in purgatory much more so than I ever did because I got to know God better. I think there was nothing he would do. If you tell me there were three purgatories, like 90 chances to get to heaven, I would believe it. Because I don't think there's anything he would not do to have us be with him, to get us to be with him. It's like he is just, he's just humbling himself. I mean, beyond um, 
beyond anything I can comprehend for us to be with him. I mean, to come back as a wafer in communion, just something that can be dropped, that can be kicked in the in, 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 uh, sewer, put in the garbage, totally manipulated, but to, 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 to like reduce himself to something so small, so tiny every day, to make it easy for us to enjoy him, to accept him, to be one with him, just goes to show you the length of his mercy, how much he wants to be with us. And so... Um, after that, um, I began to realize that um, mercy, at least in my definition, is, is compassion to the point of action. And, and it's mercy that, that perfects us. Um, his mercy perfects imperfect love. Um, and loving hurts. Um, I'm sorry are probably the most powerful words that we'll, we'll ever know. Not taking anything away from my love you, but when you have a God that's willing to take you back, to be able to say, I'm sorry, just perfects our love. It means that we're willing to return back to a right state with God, back to love, and have our love perfected, and know that whatever we did, he can bring good out of it if we just trust him and walk with him. Um, if we could only be more caring, I'm like, if I could only be more caring, you know, with um, my relationships with God um, and his healing power and with each other, um, it could change humanity throughout history. I mean, if Adam and Eve had just said, I'm sorry, you know, God forgive me. If Judas had just said, I'm sorry, God forgive me, um, it would have impacted their lives and probably history from that point forward. Um, who knows if it would have been the original sin. God would have just said, okay, I forgive you. You came back to me. But Adam and Eve couldn't do it. Cain couldn't do it. Abraham was even back and forth. Adam, I mean, we're, all, we're all back and forth. Um, a, a very, uh, I guess, a salient point in the Bible is when... Um, Jesus comes to uh, Peter and he says, Peter, Peter, the devil has been getting permission to sift you like wheat. That's a shocker. That'll, that'll get your attention, right? He says, not only does the devil want to sift you out like wheat, but he's gotten permission. You know, we kind of said, have at it. And so the next line, though, he goes, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed that when you repent, you will then go forth and encourage your brothers. So he prayed for, G for Peter to be able to come back from this. Um, and Peter, of course, goes on to say, I'll never deny you. you know, I'll, be back. I'll be by your side to my death. And he goes, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And he does. But he does repent. He does come back. And Jesus reinstates him. And he says, you know, do you love me more than these? You know, first it's, you know, feel a love, you know, um, brotherly love. I mean, I actually want to ask him for agape love. And Peter says, well, you know, I got brotherly love for you, not, not, not you know, agape love. And he asked him two or three times. Um, but he got Peter to understand, like, what love really meant, how much love really meant. But it all happened as a result of Peter just coming back saying I'm sorry, having faith in his love, faith in his mercy, and, reinst and it reinstated him as our first pope. Um, and we are all in need of this compassion, this compassion to the point of action, both in following God and in practicing that on each other. And it goes above and beyond anyone having an offense, having an offense towards someone, someone offending us. Um, it's a state of being. It's a state of walking. It is kindness. It's everything that God speaks to is all a result of his mercy because he is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. There can be nothing else but mercy. There can be nothing else but forgiveness because we're all imperfect. And we all need to live in that well of mercy um, and grow in that well of mercy. And I pray that we can all, in silence, if nothing else, in silence. The book is great. There's a Divine Mercy Chaplet. I have copies of it if you'd like. I, I actually like to use, there's a, um, you can download the chaplet onto your cell phone. Um, it takes about eight minutes. I hate to, get, you know, kind of, uh, reduce it to a timing thing uh, just to get it done, but it, it, it's, it's only eight minutes. It's only eight minutes long. I, can, I do this on my way back and forth to church. 
Um, but above and beyond that, I would ask that you, and this comes from what I do, I guess I, I get the most out of it, so maybe it's just me, but um, try sitting in silence and just meditating and contemplating God's mercy. Know that it's around you, know that it's all around you, and it starts to occupy your heart. You start to see things differently. Even when you're offended, you start to see beyond the offense and start looking at the relationship, knowing that person is hurt. You start getting outside yourself. That person could be having a bad day. You know, that person could have gotten hurt in the past. This is now their defense mechanism. Um, just recently, as I was talking about us being busy, I worked for a very small company um, called Express Logic. We do operating systems. Think of like Windows for really teeny tiny um, devices. So like really embedded devices. And so Microsoft bought us out. So I went from a company of like 50 people to a company of 130,000 people, just like that. We've been, I mean, crazy busy, just inundated with, I know why I love the small company so much now, just processes and procedures and meeting after meeting after meeting. Um, we celebrate meetings versus actually getting work done. It's, 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 it's so frustrating to me, but it's, it's, it's just, it is what it is, right? I, I'm, I'm happy, I'm blessed to have a job. Microsoft is a good company, a lot of smart people. Um, but in this merger, in this acquisition, um, you know, cultures are clashing. Um, there's some finger pointing going on. Uh, there's a lot of complaining about how big they are, you know, so on and so forth. Um, there is a person who is uh, getting singled out by the team because this particular person is not returning phone calls. She's not being a team player, just in short. And yesterday it was really getting bad because, again, uh, this person was AWOL. And um, we're all on a, team, on, a, on a phone conference, and it's starting to build about what she's not doing what's not going on, what's not happening, what's not getting done. And um, I immediately just, just kind of blurted out, you know, I, I wonder if something's going on in her life right now because um, I don't know if this is typical behavior. I mean, I know this person very well. She comes from the Microsoft side. Um, there could be something going on in her life. Um, has anyone contacted her just to see how she's doing? You know, you know what's going on, what's up? Immediate silence. Change in, change in conversation, like, oh, you know, you're right. There could be, well, how do we pick up the slack? What can we do for her? What can, how can we make this easier? How can we get, you know, maybe get around her? Now, I have no idea if anything's going on. She could just be a jerk. I have no idea. But um, it, it does get you to think differently, and it does get you through um, the negative, just the, the, the negative gravitational pull of, of just, uh, I don't know, uh, anger, uh, ridicule, judgment, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that comes when you can make a space in your heart where mercy exists. Um, and, and then you have a, a well to pull from. And just know that Jesus is the ultimate source. Um, confession now has become more of a, a spiritual direction event for me. Um, I ask questions. The priest asks questions. Uh, I'm amazed at how much priests will open up in, in my, in, during my confessions. It's kind of like, oh, man, when I do that, and I look like you do that. I guess you do. Um, he goes, this is how I handle it. Um, it's become more of a... Ah, yeah, dialogue, exactly, yeah, to become more of a conversation than um, something I go to, and I, I feel, see, I enjoy confession, but I don't feel as bad. I feel there is a healing. I feel that there is a, um, okay, let, let's address this, let's clean this out, let's look at it, um, and let's send you back out there, you know, whole again. Um, it's become a healthy exercise for me. Um, so keep in mind in closing, right, yes, in closing, um, um, only the perfect can perfect us. Okay, uh, I've learned that only God can perfect me because he's perfect. I can't perfect myself no matter how hard I try, how much I think I'm doing it. I, I can't. Um, and only mercy can heal my imperfection because mercy is the antidote. God is the antidote. God is the answer. He's the physician who came to heal um, the sick. Um, he actually said that. Um, 
And as I just said, let us take the time daily right, to sit in silence, reflect on Christ's mercy, and, and just produce the abundance of fruit um, of his mercy uh, for all of us. Um, and, and it comes from him, and he, he basically says, uh, I'm the vine, you know, you're the branches, and you can do nothing. The word is nothing without me. Um, and it's extremely true. We just happen to, uh, we just happen to forget. I know everyone here, I'm, preach, I'm preaching to the choir. It's nothing we don't know. We just, we just happen to forget. Um, let's try and make it a habit of thinking about that every single day so you don't even have to forget because it just becomes a part of you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Breakthrough of Grace podcast. We're a small word of mouth movement. Can we ask you to share it with a friend? Please see our show notes and website for discussion questions and other resources. Until next time, may God bless you, keep you, and make his face shine upon you.